0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. I'd like to tell you about a new podcast we've launched. It's called the NBN Book of the Day, and it is just what it says. One new book from the NBN catalog every day. Well, not quite every day. It's actually about 260 days because we don't publish on weekends. In any event, on each of these days, we pick a book from our catalog that is interesting and timely and sometimes on the news and sometimes quirky, and it's a good introduction to the New Books Network. You can go to the landing page of of the New Books Network website, and you can find all kinds of ways to subscribe. You know, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, the usual suspects. Anyway, I think you'll enjoy it, one book, every day. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Alan Chung about his latest edited volume, edited together with Kuang Min Pham, Critical Reflections on China's Belt and Road Initiative. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Alan, I wonder if we could start off with a bit of an intellectual biography of yourself and how you got to editing this or co-editing this book.
0: Well, it all started with uh, conversations with the late LHM Ling, better known as Lily Ling. Uh, She knew that I was getting into this uh, exotic interdisciplinary area called uh, Asian international relations thought, which again blends uh, very easily into the study of Asian political thought, past, present and future and so on. Um, So it came out of that and it started on the sidelines of uh, the International Studies Association annual convention, uh, roughly in 2014, I can't remember exactly uh, where that w- or where that was held, uh, but certainly we, we had a a very good lunch uh, to ease into this future pipeline of projects, and uh, this was actually the second collaboration with her before she passed away, sadly, uh, in 20 late 2018. Um, it, it, it came out partly of her interest in trying to understand how uh, Xi Jinping's uh, Belt and Road Initiative was actually uh, a very fortuitous art- uh, turn of events, let's put it that way, uh, in which uh, Asians were now encouraged to talk to one another uh, across political, social, economic, cultural barriers. And uh, in this sense, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative could go a lot further than what uh, during the Cold War m- one might call, you know, the Non-Aligned Movement, or you know, in the nineteen nineties there was this popularity with uh, the so-called South-South dialogue. You know, so the Belt and Road Initiative actually goes a lot further than that in terms of uh, its uh, economic, social, political, uh, and intellectual momentum. So this is how it, it got started, and uh, Lily wanted to um, push several projects out by getting funding grants and so on from any available quarter. So I, on my part, managed to get the uh, Jeju Forum on Peace and Prosperity, the one based in the famous tourist island of Jeju in South Korea, um, to fund the first uh, workshop of sorts. Well, we couldn't call it a workshop because that forum uh, you know, wants something oriented towards Asian perspectives on peace and you know prosperity, economic growth, and so on. So we we spun that first uh, session into something titled "Revisiting the Ancient Silk Roads," you know, uh, an alternative to neoliberal globalization. Uh, coming from the United States, you know, understandably, Lily was uh, very much on the attack against neoliberal globalization. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's how the first project turned up in, in Jeju. And we managed to spin it into a journal special issue in the Asian Journal of Comparative Politics. Uh, so that was successfully published before she passed away. In the meantime, she had published several pieces on her own about how China's rise needed to be analyzed in terms of the yin and the yang of Taoism, Uh, blended with Confucianism and so on. So all these things came together uh, in Hanoi in late 2017. Uh, Thanks to the generous funding by uh, Quang Minh Pham at the uh, Vietnam National University, uh, drawing on his collaboration with uh, the Conrad Adenauer Stiftung uh, based in Vietnam, we managed to get the funds to fly a number of, uh, from Vietnam's perspective that is, Foreign speakers in, uh, myself included, and Lily was so thrilled because it was, I think, her first time in Vietnam, if I recall correctly. Uh, you know, and and she landed, I remember, um, around about uh, half an hour before midnight, and uh, we had a very unusual uh, late night supper session. Of course, I I had a good dinner before that, the official dinner, which she missed because of the strange, you know, uh, poor coincidence. Of uh, flight timings from the United States, so she flew all the way, you know, roughly I think, fifteen to sixteen hours from New York, uh, you know, across the United States, across the Pacific, uh, transited in Hong Kong, and ended up in Hanoi. So, any anyway, she was still um, very alert and, and you know uh, very talkative at that late hour. So we, we chatted about this project and several others uh, way into the wee small hours on the morning. So you can imagine the next morning, everybody showed up just in time for the proceedings of the workshop. So anyway, uh, she was going on and on about how uh, we needed to take control of this intellectual narrative away from the usual China threat thesis. And in many ways, also away from Chinese authoritarianism and definitely away from the American rhetoric. Uh, I should correct myself that mainstream American rhetoric of neoliberal globalization as a lens through which to view the belt and Road initiative because if you look at it, uh, Chinese expectations and you know flexibility in negotiating these deals uh, do not um, what do you call fit uh, the IMF World Bank orthodoxy in any case. Um, now coming down to the book, um, I've had actually along with uh, min Far, quite a bit of difficulty uh, trying to uh, render it as academic as possible uh, in the sense that many of the papers initially submitted to that workshop in Hanoi were policy critiques. Uh, You know, they they, they had some kind of general research question, you know, driving these papers, but they were meant to uh, be reading for uh, time-pressed policymakers. So, You know, uh, that was a bit of a challenge trying to transform these so-called bullet point type policy think pieces into uh, workable paragraphs that had something that resembled the elegance of a fully thought out chapter. And then uh, at the other extreme, there were the chapters by Lily Ling herself, looking at how you could literally, in the title of her chapter, square the circle, uh, discuss Chinese hegemony or, or imputed Chinese hegemony over the Belt and Road, together with the idea that this was an Asian perspective on world order uh, at the same time. Of course, we did not need to fit Xi Jinping's uh, mold of a totalitarian world order, but you know we could, of course, revive okay, his subtext as the main text, i.e., The idea of revisiting the ancient silk roads as inspiration for the modern silk roads, however many there may be. Of course, today we can count the health silk road, the the digital silk road, the twenty first century maritime silk road, and of course the landed silk roads, which are many in themselves. Many of which thread through the Middle East, thread through Central Asia, and uh, link you know basically the Asia's uh, in plural here that is uh, that have never been so called. Uh, deeply intertwined with one another since the end of colonialism, uh, and, and so on. So the the chapters in the book, uh, if I can just quickly, you know, mention in passing, just to keep uh, you, the reader and listener, interested, you um, know, cover a wide gamut of perspectives. Uh, again, all adhering to the idea of critical readings. Uh, first of all. Uh, the first two chapters, uh, basically, Lily Ling and myself sought to imagine the Silk Roads through philosophy and history. We drew a lot of inspiration from Buddhism, uh, Pan-Asianism, the, the writings of ancient travelers, uh, some of whom were Buddhist, some were uh, very uh, worldly Islamic thinkers. Uh, and then there was Marco Polo himself. All right, who was uh, Catholic, but you know, a very open-minded Catholic who, who didn't pass judgment when he reached uh, Kublai Khan's court uh, in China. Okay, which was fascinating. And you think about Sino-US tensions today. You know how different that is. Okay, back then people were open-minded. We didn't pass judgments just like that. Uh, we also looked at critical geographies on the road, and uh, in this sense, we have tried very hard. To suggest that there's so much more to critical geographies through studying the Belt and Road than meets the eye. Uh, you know, my Vietnamese co-author, uh, Quang Min Pham, and uh, his collaborator, uh, you know, suggested that we needed to think of this revived Silk Roads uh, as uh, a way of understanding dilem- dilemmatic geography, meaning there are dilemmas to it. All right, And then uh, we have this Vietnamese historian Trinh Van Dinh who talked about uh, the need to understand infrastructure frenzy or infrastructure fetishism in terms of Chinese empire building in the 21st century uh, and, and so forth. Um, and of course, there's the railroad chapter by Wu Shang Su who pays attention to the fact that uh, this can be seen as empire building through the medium of railroads or it can be seen as a new Phase of globalization, uh, you know, interior globalization or landed globalization, if you will, where railroads are connecting countries uh, within the multiple Asias that, that, you know, we know exist out there but who have not been as closely integrated as one would have liked. And the original Silk Road did represent a kind of uh, plasticine cosmopolitanism that a uh, few people have fully appreciated. And the railroad could actually bring uh, so much of the Middle East and East Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, so much closer uh, than ever uh, before. And of course, there was long ago the Maritime Silk roads uh, that is going to be strengthened immeasurably with the BRI. The critical political economy section is somewhat more conventional in its criticism in the sense that they look closely at... Uh, how Chinese investments have fit the new colonial pattern, or not. So there's that, and of course, being uh, located in Vietnam, this workshop had to produce a number of critical national perspectives. So, for instance, uh, one of the Vietnamese authors uh, was very interestingly engaged in deeply reading trends in American officialdom, where she suggested they were, you know, involved in this. Or rather, they were wrapping themselves in this deep contradiction of, um, you know, saying that they want in on the business angle of the BRI, but on the other hand, you know, uh, the official rhetoric is that China is a threat, a rising threat as a great power. So we'll have little to do it to, to do with the BRI as far as possible. So there are all these going on, and uh, you know, I, I'll leave the conclusion, uh, you know, for you to enjoy the suspense of reading it. Uh, where I do touch on empire, the notion of empire in relation to China. I do touch on the new developmentalism. And I think also that the whole idea of the BRI intellectually challenges us to think about uh, connecting within Asia, a theme which I've been saying throughout this podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, That introduction is indeed very helpful. Um, It also leads me to what uh, my overall impression is from reading the book, And that, in fact, in many ways, transcends Asia in the sense that it really is about, you know, building a new global world order and inclusive and cohesive societies that can manage uh, the interests of uh, all stakeholders, as well as political, cultural, Mm -hmm. ethnic and religious differences. Um, It's an approach that departs markedly from the bulk of the analysis of the Belt and Road. You've talked a little bit about uh, uh, what led you to that, but maybe you can expand on that a little bit.
0: Uh, in the sense that uh, I have this abiding interest in uh, Asian international relations theory. Is that, is that the angle? That, that.
1: Whichever angle, what, I, what I'm trying to suggest is that obviously your interest in Asian international relations theory is was your entry point. But I'm suggesting that this goes far beyond that, that it's much more, in a sense, universal or global. Okay, thank you for, of, for
0: that a particular comment. I, I, I'm actually quite thrilled to hear this because I had not thought that this book would have this, um, you know, Possibility of transcendence. All right? um, my primary interest, okay, which is anchored to my rather lengthy chapter looking at Silk Road cosmopolitanism via what I call uh, mercantile harmony, was just that you know I wasn't thinking about the, so at uh, the point of inception of the political economy angles, critical geography elements, and so on. Uh, But then, you know, it it came down to someone having to spearhead this project because uh, one of Lily's uh, promises, okay, sadly, before her tragic passing away, was that she would edit what we joked uh, as the mother of all volumes on the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. But sadly, she passed away. So, you know, I hope that this would not be the end of this network that she set up, Mm. you see. So I, I thought that I at least owe it to her memory to see this through uh, to publication. And, and, and so it is, all right? And um, in, in the book launch yesterday, I deliberately highlighted uh, the picture on the cover, all right? just so that you know uh, readers uh, who pick this up will understand that a lot of thought went into the choice of the cover. Now, this is uh, a picture of a lonely border outpost, desolate, bleak, and so on. It looked like uh, nature was actually the dominant uh, feature in the landscape, and then humankind artificially created this border gate, and so on. But this is exactly so uh, emblematic of uh, the entire Belt and Road project. It, It is, in a way, tabula rasa. Uh for building new connections between the many Asians that you know don't come to our normal consciousness of world affairs. I
1: want to just stay on this theme for a little while and and push you a little bit, if I if I may, in the sense is that implicitly, I think, in, in some parts even explicitly in the book, you're talking about uh, uh the Belt and Road, inter-Asia connections as basically being a mechanism to create a a more equal, more inclusive world. And it strikes me that that may be a hard sell in a polarized world in which prejudice and bias and policies that flow from it have gained new legitimacy and become mainstream. Yeah,
0: that that is a helpful provocation. Um, As an academic, one, of course, needs to divide one's time and responsibilities Uh, Towards servicing uh, whoever pays my salary, which is in my case, the the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, with with this very practical policy orientation. But on the other hand, you know, uh, I'm still a dyed in the wool academic. And in that sense, uh, I have to still write with the hope that my writing can lift the curtains or draw the curtains, depending on your preferred analogy, on the inspirations uh, that have always been with us from the past. So in in this sense, uh, so much of Asia, I think, uh, has grown up thinking that uh, we were baked in modernity from day one, but we have not been. Okay, insofar as the word modernity can be used to label present-day Asia, we have a hybridized, highly hybridized modernity. Every time I uh, visit any East Asian country, Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, any ASEAN country, okay, sadly, I've yet to set foot on mainland China. Um, I, I'm astounded by the fact that uh, people do not uh, embrace modernity in the way that Americans would uh, or Europeans would. In, in fact, I find some intellectual affinity with uh, you know, the, the European countries that have produced great philosophers uh, like the UK, like the French, uh, like the Germans, uh, and you know further down the line, the Italians and the Spaniards. Uh, in the sense that uh, much as they have embraced, you know, digital technology here and there, uh, high-speed railways, uh, the idea that, you know, you can pre-book hotel rooms and check-in online, things like that, Uh, they've also retained a certain sense that uh, we are who we are from the past, you know, Uh, and some things should never change despite the advances of technology. Uh, Whereas if you land at... um, Most American airports in big cities, uh, you know, and I suppose this will continue post COVID 19. uh, You are faced with um, a challenge to all your senses because uh, there's so much of high technology surrounding you and forcing you to interface with um, a very uh, post human experience. (laughs) I I can't think of a better word at the moment. You know, uh, you think about your automatic uh passport scanner, your your um flight ticket reader. You know, that that's so uh, inhuman, you know. Whereas you go to certain uh European airports, uh, you know, and across Asia, you still have the human agent there serv- serving you, you know, and asking you, you know, in terms of an interpersonal form of verification, have you got fully confirmed Bookings for your stay in the country, or have you got onward bookings and so on and so forth? You know, which makes you feel more like a human being. So th- this is what you know animates my academic writings. That at the end of the day, you know, it's not technology that's the author of you know our improvements in in life. You know, it's, it's still a human being at the end of it.
1: Indeed, uh, that's absolutely true.
0: I want to, and coming to that. <clears throat> Sorry. Indeed, that's absolutely
1: true. And coming to that, I I want to pursue this just with one more question. And that's uh, in Lily Ling's chapter, in which she talks about the need of a global agenda to take the need of ordinary people into account to ensure that we have a more inclusive world. And the question is, how do you achieve that?
0: That's where, you know, uh, academia, okay, I can't speak about uh, government But civil society definitely is one of the pillars of this uh, so-called ground-up initiative, all right? So I do believe in in civil society, whether you call it transnational civil society, national civil society, or just global civil society. Uh, And I think academia is part and parcel of this movement, all right, to uh, try to wrest control of the narrative of the 21st century from governments, uh, governments that uh, often are you know flat footed, you know ham fisted and so on. You know you look at COVID nineteen. Some of the uh, stories of protection, welfare, care, you know um, comfort come from ground up initiatives. And and governments have by and large by and large uh, messed up. You know uh, the, the front end of trying to contain the situation. Uh, So this is roughly where, you know, I stand as an academic. Uh, I believe that my writing will make a difference. You know, it's a Sisyphean task uh, or, you know, it's a David and Goliath task if you prefer the other analogy. And, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm uh, rabidly anti-American or anti-Western. It's just that I think that academia needs to democratize, especially in international relations. Where you know the founding texts were all written by people from colonial metropoles from uh, two centuries ago, you know, and of course those in the last century uh, have you know continued to be regarded, all right, as a kind of orthodoxy that interpreted their forebears and that nothing should be changed. So that's where my writing is going. Uh, notwithstanding the occasional piece that looks at a very practical problem concerning security in Asia, but by and large, I think in the long term You know, I will be writing about how we need to revalue uh, Asia's intellectual heritage, uh, including those of its first generation nationalists.
1: Related to this, um, you uh, draw a contrast, a stark contrast, between the ancient and the current Silk Road. Can
0: you expand and describe that contrast? Uh, Certainly. Uh, The ancient Silk Roads were low on technology, all right? Uh, If you pick up Uh, Marco Polo, uh, Farsi and uh, Ibn Battuta, you realise that there was constant danger at every step uh, of the way from nature, alright? And because all of humanity, anyone you encounter on the road uh, could potentially be your friend because they have lived there. They know how to deal with these elements, attacks by wild animals even, the the, the shift of uh, the ground because of the wind direction and so on and so forth. Um, So, that that I think was very different from today, where you assume that technology will make sure that your journey on the modern Silk Road is just smooth. Uh, you don't think because technology acts as this cocoon of security for you. So, maybe you know, in that sense, uh, operating in a low tech environment makes you more aware of your common humanity with the people, the fellow traveler, between better commerce, that you encounter along. The Silk Roads, you know. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Whereas the, the modern assumes that technology will do all that, um, but even then, um, modern technology does not diminish completely obstacles arising from culture. Excuse <coughs> me. Metro is a bit dry. Um, yeah, obstacles arising from culture, and uh, there's so much cultural proliferation and variety along the modern Silk Roads that have predated the arrival of modern. Ways of government, modern technology, the Westphalian state, and so on. Um, I haven't been to to Central Asia myself, but you know, having made a few friends who are academics a displaced from Central Asia, and, and much of it was, by the way, the former Cold War territories of the Soviet Union, the erstwhile Soviet Union. You you realize that there's so much humanity, Asian humanity, that. Uh, you you find in common, all right, uh, with, with uh, people from Central Asia, they actually shared this Confucian heritage from what is today, you know, the People's Republic of China, and the irony is, the People's Republic of China, I think, is treading very carefully politically, uh, you know, doctoring parts of their Confucian Taoist legacy just so that it doesn't upset the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, it's it's tragic uh, in one sense, in the sense that you know uh, this is not an orthodox communist party in charge in China. You know, they should uh, you know openly embrace the fact that they are the successors to this very rich two thousand plus year uh, years worth of heritage. Uh, it, instead, you know, they are fighting this cultural war against things that might undermine communist party rule, which is, uh, I think, against the current of history. Whereas if you go back to, you know, these kinds of routes, you can actually find common frequency in building confidence with your neighbours, not just with Mongolia, it's also with uh, the two Koreas, with Japan. You know, so this Sino-Japanese antagonism that, you know, has fueled so many careers in mainstream academia, it's just a product of both states trying to be too modern for their own good. Because if you look at the past, nobody drew tight Westphalian-type boundaries. And the ancient Silk Roads revealed that. Travellers just filtered themselves east and west, you know, and stopped wherever people showed them hospitality. Nobody said this was, uh, you know, absolutely the border of this kingdom. Therefore, if you don't have a proper passport, you're thrown out. No, it wasn't like that. And um, I don't know if uh, your, your listeners, readers, have time to actually read Marco Polo's The Travels. Now, that is not a tourist book, you know, as some people might have it. Uh, It is actually um, a running political commentary of how uh, someone from the former Roman Empire, because Marco Polo lived in in that period, that medieval period, that still looked back at the glory of the Roman Empire. You know, he travelled to the court of Kublai Khan, and the picture he painted was not that of a murderous, you know, (laughs) step-bound, step as an S-T-E-P-P-E-bound, uh you know, uh, cannibalistic horde. It, it was far from it. In fact, Kublai Khan was uh, depicted, I think, very sympathetically, and I, I've done the research, it does check out with, you know, other historians' accounts of Kublai Khan, you know, that he was uh, harsh in some ways, but he was also just, and he had, uh you know, demonstrated, uh, you know, that he could behave in the tradition of, The best of Confucianism and Taoism, and so on.
1: Um, You know, in some ways, I think, and this harks into what you you just uh, just said. In some ways, you know, your analysis suggests that the contrast between the ancient Silk Road and the current Chinese Belt and Road effort. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. In some ways, and this harks back into what you were just explaining. Uh, it strikes me that the contrast between the ancient Silk Road and the current Chinese efforts makes dubbing the Belton Road as a new Silk Road. <clears throat> Ooh, sorry about that, Alan.
0: The, the air is dry today. <laughs> yeah.
1: Let me uh, uh, yeah. let me try let me try this again. Uh harking it uh onto what you just explained, it strikes me that uh in some ways the contrast that you would uh describing between the uh, Ancient Silk Road and the current Chinese efforts make dubbing the Belt and Road as the New Silk Road a misnomer because the New Silk Road, in many ways, was everything that the Antique Road
0: was not. Yes, yes. Uh, in, in a sense, uh, I, I perhaps have not been very precise in uh, drawing a line between the New Silk Roads and, and the Old Silk Roads. Uh, but, you know, uh, I leave that perhaps to critics of my book or people who would. Produce books on the Belt and Road Initiative after me and Kuang and Min Fang. Um, you know, we, we've used these terms very loosely throughout the book, uh, in part because we wanted to accommodate the diversity out there. And uh, what's interesting about uh, the Vietnamese perspectives, uh, because I, I suspect uh, some of your listeners and readers might, uh, you know, approach the Vietnamese contributions as somewhat too closely tied to an authoritarian government but uh, I urge them to look beyond it because uh that sort of situated perspective also provides a learning point uh, in the sense that they do see uh you know the need to connect the past to the present and in some ways also through the critical readings of China's intentions uh, are attempting to encourage China to reconnect with uh, its early spurt of idealism under the first phase of Mao Zedong's rule, alright? Uh, Mao Zedong, of course, is remembered for being the, between the commas, winner of the Chinese Civil War that followed immediately after Japan's defeat in the Pacific War, alright? Uh, but, you, you see, Mao wanted to speak from the new China that he founded, called the People's Republic, uh, to the rest of the dead third world, alright? Uh, as uh, an experiment in possibility. Okay, I'm using this phrase loosely in the sense that uh, he was simultaneously addressing, okay, in his many speeches, both his domestic audience as well as fellow so-called decolonized territories. Uh, that look, you know, we are now turning a page in world history because we need to make the post-colonial state work. All right, for its people and for keeping the the flame of liberation from all forms of colonialism, neo-imperialism, neo-colonialism, etc., you know, alive. And and this is how history should go forward, that we need to democratise the world order away from the idea of Western empire. Uh, So the Vietnamese chapters, I think, were speaking to that first phase of Mao Zedong's uh, idealism, even if they didn't spell it out that way. Uh, and, And this was also an eye-opener for me into uh, the intellectual uh, side of uh, Vietnamese intelligentsia today. You know, that much as you you hear all the things about uh, how the Vietnamese Communist Party is controlling so many aspects of public life there, you have professors uh, willing to write these things, right? Of course, you can say that, you know, it was safe because they didn't criticise their own government Uh, or write a fair counter-criticism. But then that was not the point we were talking about the Belt and Road uh, initiated by China. Uh, and I, I think most of the Vietnamese chapters have also been fair uh, to the Chinese in the sense that uh, they did suggest that the world needs to take a more objective view of what uh, the Chinese can bring to the table through the development you uh, know, mode of the Belt and Road initiative.
1: Uh and yet many of the issues that you describe uh, with which travelers like Fahisian, Marco Polo, even Battuta were grappling are issues that we are ta- attempting to tackle today. Parameters of human interaction, virtue, diversity, governance, materialism, and the role of religion. So in many ways, what we're talking about really is the same issues in ancient times that we're talking about today.
0: Yes, uh, in- indeed. And I kind of understand why, uh, you know, not many uh, academics associated with the mainstream international relations schools are not looking at cultural interaction in this globalizing world. And, and the fact that you have got issues like Black Lives Matter coming up and then, you know, uh, inspiring uh, equally passionate anti colonial movements or decolonial movements uh, from the grassroots in so many other countries. You know, say something about how globalization actually is increasingly going to have to be reappropriated by people on the ground. All right. It's not just about CEOs and companies saying, oh, you know, uh, we need to open up borders so I can provide your people employment and repatriate my profits and to sell you consumer goods and so on and so forth. You know, it's not that kind of top down corporate globalization you know that we should be talking about in the 21st century it's about people meeting people and trying to understand that you know there's so much diversity out there that you know the greatest common frequency we have is our humanity all right so you know if you look at relations between uh the west and islam you know why do you need to focus on the fact that we are worshiping gods under different names you know Uh, and we've got different religious holidays and so on, why can't we understand it in terms of common humanity? And and I'm sure, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden, and and of course I can't remember the the current head of ISIS, they're not people who are universally liked across the Arab world. You know, they they do not epitomise, I think, uh, ordinary, uh, down-to-earth Arab people, all right? And and in fact, uh, I should also add uh, uh, to Lily Link's credit, uh, in this... Uh, network that she set up. Uh, we had a number of people like Manoche. I thought Manoche was a wonderful chap. You know, I never met uh, an Iranian American before. Um, and uh, I've got another collaborator who's, in a sense, a, a very uh, what do you call, uh, secular Arab, if I can coin that term. Uh, he grew up okay, still being able to read fluently and speaking fluently. In, in Arabic, but he spent all his time, you know, all around the world in Canada, in France, uh, in parts of Europe, and so on. And of course, he spent a good part of the early phase of his assistant professorship uh, in Qatar. So, you know, this is a cosmopolitan Arab, and there are plenty out there uh, whom you can talk to. And and this is, I think, where you know the uh, subtext of my book, uh, you know, encourages future scholars to pick this up. Just for the
1: listener, you were referring to Manusheh Douraj, an an Iranian-American scholar who contributed a chapter to your book on China's relations primarily with Iran, but also with Mm. Saudi Arabia. And perhaps if we have time, we'll get back to that. I want to stick for a moment uh, with the travelers, because one of the basic arguments, if I understood it correctly, that you make is that they were able to manage all of this diversity and differences because they encountered uh, or had similar experiences and encountered similar threats. Yes. And the question is, how, how does one re- replicate or apply that experience
0: uh, in today's world? Okay, first of all, the, the, the idea of human security is there. You know, every human being has a right to feel secure, not just, you know, by having a roof over their heads and enough to eat and so on, but also in terms of cultural security. Uh, I, I know the, the academic research out there is not sufficiently up to speed on this, but cultural security is important. You know, uh, when people cross borders, they should not feel that their culture is being despised by the host automatically. And And, you know, I can say that some of this happens even in cosmopolitan Singapore, where uh, migrant workers are sometimes looked down upon uh, by ordinary Singaporeans on public transport and so on. Uh, And and I think this fear has partially diminished in the wake of uh, the the shared suffering between the migrant workers and Singaporeans during the current pandemic. And and you realise that there are lots of well-meaning Singaporeans who are willing to step up to say, look, you know, if you are infected and you suffer of COVID-19, which is an extreme form of flu, you know, we we will help you, alright? And and I think, you know, it's this spirit of understanding that our common humanity that should be out there, you know, and, and of course I can't say that you know, uh, I, I was that idealistic consistently all my life, you know, but uh, academia, I think, through the training of the mind, through philosophy, history, and so on, um, you know, does open up your Human boundaries as well. In in many ways, uh, I should also want to highlight the fact. Uh, again, I wasn't sure whether to push this point. Um, that one other important theme that came out of my chapter is this idea of uh, mercantile harmony, uh, linked, okay, to the conjoining, okay, of the worlds of material commerce, meaning buying, selling, things like that, the exchange of uh, funds, etc and the spiritual realm. Uh, You know, in in today's uh, understanding of religion, very often, you know, uh, uh, preachers would say, let's separate the two realms. One is godly, one is ungodly. But if you look at the accounts of some of these ancient travelers, you know, they did not make this clear distinction. It was all fudged. Again, I'm not saying that all the four uh, persons that I studied were all saints. But, you know, they were recording life as it were then. And now ibn batuta i think of i have uh, got to read you know several times over actually recorded uh, mecca to be an important emporium and a gourmet paradise you know this is extremely politically incorrect today you know uh, but that was the way he recorded it all right i still remember that phrase uh, uh, and i don't think the translation was wrong that uh, mecca was where you find the best meats M-E-A-T-S, all right, for his time. We said a lot about, you know, how the, the material world can coexist with the spiritual realm, all right? Uh, and Marco Polo was also all about this. Uh, you know, in, in the tone of his writings, he also did not draw clear distinctions between, you know, uh, the worldly quality of his profession. He was a trader. And his family was, his entire family, extended family, were all traders. So they were worldly people. And, you know, when he recorded what went on in all the kingdoms he encountered uh, along the ancient Silk Road, uh, you know, there was a certain sense that uh, moral propriety or justice was to be recorded accurately and respected wherever it was to be found evident.
1: Uh, this may be a tricky, tricky question, but you referred to the, uh, the limitations of the political system in Vietnam, as well as in China. And that really raises the question of the value of people-to-people contact, given that uh, people from more autocratic or authoritarian systems may not feel uh, at ease expressing themselves freely and be cautious. And of course, you have a China that imposes its narrative narrative with the stick of economic sanctions on those beyond its borders. So the question is, What is the value of people-to-people contact in a in a a context like that?
0: Ah, okay, excellent point. Now, if you if you dissect uh, President Xi's speech at the First Belt and Road Summit in Beijing, uh, he actually let this cat out of the bag. You know, he called for more intensive people-to-people interactions. So in that sense, uh, you can say that he might be strung on the horns of a dilemma. On the one hand, this is what his rhetoric says, more people-to-people contact, potentially leading to contamination from abroad of uh, you know, more tolerant ideas or ideas of toleration. And then on the other hand, you know, uh, President Xi has all these draconian controls on the internet, or rather the Chinese internet behind the firewall and so on. <laughs> You know, uh, and and of course we hear all those stories about Xinjiang, and, and of course the fallout from the political fallout from the, the ongoing uh, Hollywood production of Mulan. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, but you see, people the people contact cannot be completely controlled. You know, and, and of course I am aware that I'm aware that, um, I'm aware that uh, you know uh, China is extremely concerned uh to the point of sending uh you know i i, I suppose you can't call them spies in a conventional sense but uh people who monitor their own citizens' behavior and, and comments outside of china uh china is known to do that uh the vietnamese i'm not sure maybe they have done that also uh you know, but then, you see, if you want to integrate economically, okay, let's talk about something that's low political or, or supposedly uh, non-political, like economic interactions, you have to allow your people to get into degrees of contaminating contact with outside uh, ideas. So this is where I think uh, I, I can't make <laughs> this point um, any more delicately, objectively, uh, but the fact is, um, you know, when authoritarian regimes or totalitarian regimes, if you prefer, engage in uh, the people-to-people globalization, the chances of extreme leakage, okay, the word leakage, again, is something in the discourse of uh, authoritarian powers. They're afraid, all right, that, uh, you know, the authoritarian controls will leak once the people go outside their borders and so on. The, the potential for leakage is there, will always be there. And, and I think this is one way in which China can also learn uh, to manage its uh, rise to great power status even better. At some point, you need to take a leave from your own past. Okay, Kublai Khan, for instance, you know, he was also bloody. He put a lot of what he termed as you know, social undesirables uh, to death. But you know, when it came to the, the ordinary people, the poor, you know, he showed them generosity as a paternalistic, fatherly figure in the mold of Confucianism and Taoism, would
1: uh, sticking for a moment uh, with the Belt and Road itself, uh, you signal two major issues with the Belt with the Belt and Road initiative, and that is that it's top
0: down and China centric. Um, you would you want to uh, elaborate on that? Well, the, the the Chinese have tried to control the narrative uh, way too hard, uh, as one of the speakers at the book launch yesterday pointed out. Uh, and, you know, that that's where, you know, I think they are learning very fast to, you know, uh, reel themselves back from that kind of extreme position and and that, you know, you need the buy-in of your partners as well as, you know, the people on the ground affected by your projects. Uh, and, and that's where perhaps one would look forward to future <clears throat> Sri Lankan voices, for instance, African voices. Uh, voices from across Southeast Asia that would adopt a more objective view of uh, the promise of the Belt and Road, you know, and not have the Chinese quickly come in to say, oh, you know, you you, you ought to view it in this other way, uh, and, and so on. And, you know, this is where I think China, by learning to tweak the Belt and Road 2.0, in, insofar as you can use that label, uh, you know, will listen to alternative voices. Voices less constrained by Beijing's preferences, all right, to speak up for it.
1: Um, I want to return to another much more broader subject that you um, suggest in the book and that we were talking about at the beginning of this interview, uh, which is that in order to manage different value systems and interests, one would have to water down the Westphalian dogma of treating national interests as zero-sum conceptions. Uh, my, my question is, how do you do that and what did you have in mind uh, in terms of watering down that absolute, the absoluteness of the notion of national interests?
0: Well, first of all, I think all citizens of existing nation-states should learn to embrace diversity, you know, that people have different ways of practicing culture uh, on top of our common humanity, and that this is a legitimate right. Unfortunately, we have in the White House right now a president who does not believe in that, Um, and, you know, I have to make reference to, uh, you know, the occupant of the White House in Washington, D.C., because you know, like it or not, that is still an important uh, pulpit for trying to influence the world. Uh, and of course, Beijing can be the alternative pulpit, but uh, President Xi and his colleagues in power, I think, need to understand that uh, the belt and road uh, can achieve its full potential only if uh, some degree of diversity is allowed to flourish, all right, against the official preference. Uh and this is where I think uh, the Westphalian system will come under erosion. It won't be eroded uh, totally dismantled overnight, but it needs to relax its controls, its obsession with, you know, a dominant national narrative all the time. And you see this also even in uh, so-called uh, cosmopolitan Singapore. This constant tug of war between an official nationalism and then what's happening on the ground. You see, uh, and and. It, All states facing this COVID-19 pandemic will have to make this choice. On the one hand, closed borders can provide some degree of protection against the further spread of the virus. But on the other hand, you need to keep uh, a good number of doors to the rest of the world open because they will bring your relief supplies, your normality okay, through daily e-commerce back into your life. All right, and um, now this is uh, off the bounds of of today's discussion, I suppose, but tourism. Now, tourism is uh, a much underappreciated dimension of globalization social, political, economic, you name it. Um, And tourism has been, I think, an important part of ensuring that the European Union stays as it is. You know, and uh, what one uh, cannot help but be struck by. Uh, this spectacle uh, of, uh, you know, many Europeans, including the British, who are still embracing Brexit like crazy, uh, you know, felt that they needed to celebrate tourism the moment uh, the lockdowns ended from the first wave. You see, of course, now they're, they're being told by their government, sorry, you know, we have to turn the clock back to put you under lockdown again to, you know, defeat the second wave of infections. You know, but the, the point I'm making is tourism means that we cannot go back to rigid Westphalian system because we need each other's uh, different you know uh, cultural and, and visual pastures all right to let our people breathe and live as human beings all right even in Asia I think uh, the moment uh, you know significant national lockdowns are over and I, I believe Thailand is uh, in at the forefront of this they're counting the days down to, to the first mass tourist flights back into the country. Because they realise that it's not just good for the economy, it's also good for giving the citizens a sense of normality.
1: Alan, this has been fascinating, and we could go
0: on for another hour, and I have many other <laughs> indeed, questions. Indeed. I, I'm and surprised, I... yeah, Th- and thankful that you've allowed, <laughs> uh, what, for 55 minutes now? Indeed, and I see I, that's exactly it. I see the uh, clock ticking.
1: But before I let you go, uh, I want to ask you what your plans are after this book. You've referred a couple of times to this being part of a larger project, there being a pipeline. Uh, Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on where you go from here.
0: Well, uh, Lily Ling's passing left a huge hole in this pipeline, which uh, a few of us, I think, are still talking about filling, you see? Uh, the, the problem is that um, many of us in this network are, are not yet fully tenured professors, you see. So we have to pay attention to our own publication records and other admin duties. So uh, professionally, I think, you know, we are at a turning point where you need someone to stand up to say, you know, let me put together, put the team back together to edit the next big book on the Belt and Road. Uh, clearly, this volume that I've just launched yesterday uh, is a drop in the ocean. Okay, I have to be modest about my efforts. Uh, it could have gone into so many other directions. Uh, but, you know, the constraints of time, uh, you know, and, and my responsibilities to the people who put together the original Hanoi workshop or conference, you know, uh, needed to take precedence. Uh, I would have liked more chapters on the philosophical angle, on the sociological angle, for instance, uh, you know, but the, the, the essence of time pressures dictated otherwise. All right, So uh, that, I think, will be in the offing. And in the meantime, I'm also working on a, a much-delayed manuscript on uh, international communication as an angle of international relations. Uh, So this this book has been on the back burner during the lockdown here in Singapore. Uh, I couldn't get any writing done because there was so much admin that was just going on online. Uh, So I hope to return to it in a month or two on top of my responsibilities here at the Centre for Multilateralism Studies.
1: That that sounds like a fascinating
0: project. Perhaps we can have another interview like this.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. If you didn't have the constraints, what would be
0: what would the next big book on the Belt and Road be? Okay, we need to, I think, go past uh, all the themes that were discussed at the launch yesterday. You know about uh, debt trap diplomacy, dependency differences between aid models. Uh, you know, and, and how China's rise uh, is benign or not. We need to go beyond all that, and and. I think the huge gap out there is, is the philosophical and historical angle. Uh, that needs to be filled. Uh, and here I need to acknowledge also the existing works by a number of uh, uh, sociologists, anthropologists and historians uh, who produced books on the Silk Road way be- before it became fashionable again under President Xi. Uh, and of course, that magnificent uh, work of popular Silk Road history by Peter Franco-Penn, uh, which I've cited in this book, uh, you know, I think he's written an eminently readable, popular history of the Silk Road that takes it up to the 20th century. Uh, and and interestingly, Franco Pan's book uh, addresses the fact that uh, after World War II, uh, Britain and the United States actually were interested in the Silk Road because of the oil that lay astride that part of it, uh, you know, running through the Middle East and Central Asia. Uh, So uh, all that has been out there for a few years now. So the philosophy and the history needs to come together, I think, in a more unique volume. And and that's something I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Uh, But I also need to think about who in Lily's original network can help deliver on that. Because the same people who delivered for this book are probably not going to be interested in this next volume that I'm trying to imagine.
1: Alan, it's uh, been fascinating to discuss a book that I think really brings originality to uh, the literature on the Belt and Road and also highlights... dimensions and perspectives that have either not been recognized or have been uh, underrated until now. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and wish you all the best.
0: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure too.